Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein. It's so good to be here to share our love of radio and sound with the audience. And I'm Jennifer Waits. It's great to be with the two of you again. We have a lot of things to talk about today. I'd actually kind of like to start out a little bit, though. I want to reintroduce ourselves. Folks may be tuning in for the first time, hearing us on the radio or tuning into our podcast for the first time, and is like, who are these three people to talk about radio and to talk about sound and podcasting, internet radio? Where What are their bona fides? And a certain kind of radio that we love most. Yes, indeed. Which I'm going to say community radio. It's a loaded word, but it still fits really in, in nicely. In community media. So, yeah. so Jennifer, please tell us, how do you come to this expertise that you have and what is this expertise? <laughs> what radio oh, wow. do you love the most? <laughs> I know. this is a, That's a big question. So I particularly love college radio. And some of that stems from having done college radio for a really long time. And I still do college radio. And I think about it every day. I like unexpected, surprising radio, especially of the non-commercial nature. So my expertise, I guess, comes from not only having done college radio, but also digging in and writing about it for academic publications and then also for industry publications, as well as Radio Survivor. Right. You've written for publications like Radio World. Uh, you've written for Radio Survivor, talking about college radio stations, events in college radio, college radio history, and your college radio watch weekly column in Radio Survivor. I think at this point is maybe the longest running college radio news coverage that at least yeah. currently exists. It, it, yeah. There used to be a variety of places where you could get these recaps of college radio news and... They've all sort of disappeared, and I'm sort of the lone survivor, if we want to you know, overuse the word survivor today, and, and I attempt to do that every week. So yeah, I feel like, I feel it's important that there needs to be somebody out there who's keeping track of the news, what's going on in the culture of college radio, because it doesn't get covered by many publications, and so when it does get covered, I like to be this resource to collect all of that so that people know where to go to get caught up on the scene. And one of my favorite things that you've taught me working on this podcast, Jennifer, is that in the 100-year history of radio in this country, college radio has been there since year zero. It's it's played a huge role in what the culture of radio sounds like across the spectrum, in, even in commercial land. There's something to think about how college students in the early part of the 20th century invented this medium. And it's been a largely... Uh, unknown history. And every time we talk about college radio yeah. history on the podcast, I'm, um, I'm reminded of that. Yeah. And well, I don't know, we may talk about this later, but that you know, every week there's an instance of college radio history getting portrayed in an erroneous way where I think a lot of people think that college radio appeared on the scene in the 1980s. When they went you know. to college, basically. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, there, there was an article recently that talked about REM launching, basically helping to launch college radio, which I thought was really hilarious, because obviously, I know that college radio has existed since at least 1920. And, and REM uh, was not on the scene in 1920. 
Well, serial launched podcasting, we all know, and there was no podcasting before there was serial. So, of course, there couldn't have been college radio before R.E.M. And we will be talking more about the history of Colorado in a moment as we talk about the 60th anniversary of a particular college radio station, uh, which Jennifer uh, is closely tied to. But, Eric, I'd like you to to introduce a little bit of, of your background and how you come to to podcasting and doing radio about radio. Oh boy, who am I? Well, I, I worked at KPFA Pacifica radio station in my uh, mid-20s, uh, uh, more than 15 years ago. So now. community radio station <laughs> in Berkeley, California. I left more than 15 years And ostensibly years ago. the first community radio station, listener-supported community yeah. radio station in the United States, um, arguably the world, but definitely in the United States, uh, went on the air in 1949. A very, you know, still a very special place. I, I, I've been tuning in a lot lately as they've been, uh, they sent a reporter to Capitol Hill. My friend Mitch Jezerich is, is uh, one of a few, I mean, how many community radio stations have a reporter who's paid full-time to cover the impeachment story, I'm going to say that KPFA might be the only one. And uh, so I've been tuning in again to their work. Also, they've been covering the wildfires in California in a way that I think is very special. Um, So KPFA has been on my mind a lot lately. I started off there. I also was a technical producer for Free Speech Radio News, which was a really remarkable uh, uh, shoestring-budgeted, a collection of radio professionals around the world who created a half-hour daily uh, news magazine program with uh, original reporting that, um, to this day, you know, when I started working there, uh, it did not quite sink in until it was... Uh, Free Speech Radio News is now off the air, and now having missing it, I realize now what an incredible news organization it was that it actually had on-the-ground reporters who are from the communities where they're filing their stories, reporting for a largely a largely U.S. audience, but these were reporters in Asia and Africa and Latin America and Europe and uh, North America and South America. So that's where I got my start, and here in Portland, Oregon, I help make lots of podcasts. I love podcasts, and uh, we've been doing this here, Radio Survivor, program as a podcast now for so many years that it's also a significant chunk of my cv four years yeah four years we've been doing this uh i'm paul reesmandel and i've been doing non-commercial radio or some version of non-commercial radio i i've counted now for 30 years as of this year i count my start is 1989 september when i started broadcasting in wtsr fm 91.3 in Trenton, New Jersey, at what is now called the College of New Jersey. Back then was known as Trenton State College. I spent a lot of time in community radio uh, through the 90s into the 2000s um, and produced a program all about, it was about community media, but also about grassroots media and about uh, media policy, media democracy as the kind of media reform movement began to gain steam in the early 2000s. It was called Media Geek, and it aired uh, beginning at uh, Community Radio WEFT in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, uh, beginning around 2002 all the way to 2009. Um, developed a network of stations that carried the program. I wrapped it up in 2009 when I was the advisor to college radio station 
uh, at uh, WNURFM at and Northwestern University. I just want to interject that that radio show that you produced, Paul, uh, the Media Geek program, was also distributed online uh, prior to the word podcast. Yes, existing. I began producing it and distributing it around 2002. Yeah, which Free Speech Radio News was also uh, available for download uh, in a way that was uh, proto-podcasting. And so I was... Yeah, you know, we. I think that we have that in common. We are uploading radio to the internet for people to to grab into their feeds. And then when uh, the and then when the, the podcast podcasts. feed was invented, it became a podcast. Yeah. Um, and of course, I helped to start Radio Survivor with Jennifer and Matthew back in two thousand and Matthew Lassar is a co-founder Matthew, of Radio Survivor indeed. and a historian of radio who who has recently uh, mentioned that he wished he had knew, known more about college radio. Uh, which he's learned so much of based on his relationship with Jennifer Waits, reading Jennifer's work in Radio Survivor, uh, prior to writing his two books about uh, Pacifica radio history. He thinks that I know, college radio's like a... contribution to history might have been more significant. Yeah, it's such a fine compliment. I, I have done my job if, mm-hmm. if people are thinking that. That's that's part of what I want is to college ra- is for college radio to be included in the canon, in the historical record, as being a significant part of radio history yeah and not to mention of course that uh it's on the air right now students are making radio and community members are making radio at stations right now across the country and it's a it's a important part of the airwaves and exactly contemporarily i work in podcasting professionally i work for stitcher i work in marketing and in uh market analytics uh i help to sell ads on the podcast basically for about 250 of them over at Stitcher, and it's a job that I can say I have because of Radio Survivor, because uh, more than five years ago, I was writing about the business of podcasting, and almost nobody else was. Yeah, and uh, Paul's future boss uh, reached out, and Paul was a guest on that uh, individual's podcast about the business of podcasting. <laughs> it gets very meta, but very yeah, fast. Which, which I, which I truly love. It's folding love. in on itself. Yeah. Um, and But I have a great endearing love for all of these sound media and all these sound platforms. And I think that it's manifest the opportunity that podcasting offers to help anyone broadcast their voice and others' voices. And that it continues to grow in a way in which there are more opportunities for more voices to be heard by more people. And that is in part why I continue to, to work on Radio Survivor is to help people uh, hear this, uh, to evangelize it. <laughs> Actually, for a while, my title was Podcast Evangelist. <laughs> That's Stitcher. Which That's is right. sort of a I joke. Remember that. Uh, but, yeah. but nevertheless, it was. And, and you know, I think that uh, whether it's through co- on community radio stations, on online stations, on college stations, through podcasts, um, you know, we're only seeing more voices. Uh, broadcast to more people and more interaction and it's a net good well i think i think one of the things that radio survivor uh is doing is that because of our uh history and love of community radio and college radio we have a little bit of a different perspective on podcasting and its emergence uh than a lot of other people who love podcasts and because of that i i think that one of the most significant contributions that um I I know that it's made me reevaluate how podcasts function these days is that um, when you come from a community radio standpoint, you have a completely different relationship with your audience and the numbers and the metrics 
than uh, than a lot of other people uh, do in America. And so we think about podcasts and what their goals are, what their relationships with with their audience. Yeah, the networks are. and the relationships that get built, and the influence and and camaraderie and interaction that yeah. develops. Not just raw download numbers or or views, et cetera. Yeah, well, we, we we think about it in terms of community impacts, whatever your community may be. I, I think I'll be a little bit more uh, even uh, clear. I think a lot of uh, what gets when podcasts are are boosted in the mainstream, there's a lot of um, a lot of people have a goal to make podcasts their uh, a second income or their living or to turn it into some kind of uh, boosting of their own brand, but anybody who works I- in the community media world, or the, a lot of people that work in college radio or community media, have a different rationale for doing the work. Uh, most, the vast majority of people that make community radio uh, do it for love, not money. And when you approach podcasting from that perspective, I think a lot of people naturally who don't come from community radio have already got that. Uh, deep down love of podcasts that they'll do it uh, for the community and for the um, enrich the self enrichment beyond uh, getting money out of it. But I don't think a lot of people talk about that. Yeah, as much. And I think that's what, that's one of the things what we, that we try to do and why we say this show is for the love of radio and sound. So we've got a, a, a number of different topics to address on on today's program. Um, and, and up at the top here is that 60th anniversary 60th birthday that i previewed a few minutes ago uh jennifer tell us who's who's celebrating her 60th who turned 60 kfjc which is the radio station where i volunteer and i'm also the volunteer publicity director so full disclosure on that um so kfjc fm is the college radio station at foothill college in the san francisco bay area and it turned 60 on October 20th and wait wait it's older than REM <laughs> it's older it's way older than REM it's true they started in 1959 at a community college which was a bit unusual at the time in 1959 to start up an FM radio station and it's been FM the entire time of its existence so as I know from all of my work on Radio Survivor um I know that, well, a couple things. Like, I I talk about the importance of college radio history all the time. So there was added pressure to to do something at the station where I volunteer surrounding its history because it was a major, major anniversary. And I also know that college radio doesn't get much media attention, but it does get media attention when it celebrates a big anniversary. So I did a lot of work to talk about the history of the station And I finally got a history blog started, which is something that I had been inspired to do by WPRB at Princeton University. They had started a history blog to to share tidbits from their history. And and like many people, I was sort of intimidated about how do you tell a 60-year history of a radio station? It's sort of this, it feels like an impossible task to really do it justice. And what I like about WPRB is that they created a blog where they could share moments from history in any order that they liked. So each post could be from a totally different era. It could be a very simple post 
with an alumni, an alumnus sharing an anecdote from station history. It could be an audio clip from a recording that has been unearthed in the archives. So, so that idea inspired me, and, and we finally launched a similar history blog for KFJC, where we're posting bits and pieces of things that we found in the archives and also stories from alums. And, and as it turned out, like everything that I had hoped for is happening where there's already an active alumni group uh, for KFJC that operates sort of on its own. They have their own Facebook group. And leading up to the 60th anniversary, they were all pulling things out of their own personal collections and sharing photos and stories. And so a lot of that material... It was as if they were writing posts already for me. So some of that material has ended up on the blog and then um, other things that I have found. Jennifer, so, can you pick a moment to share with us? It doesn't have to be the best or the most fantastic, but something that, that might stand out in this particular moment, a moment in, in KFJC history. Uh, I mean, they're like, they're moments that everybody remembers from KFJC history. And I'm trying to think of something that's not, you know, yeah. the, but the of course, we're all moment. ignorant. We don't know any of them. So you can lay a, you well, can lay one of those very I know, common I ones on I know on one because Jennifer has shared it enough times on the podcast that it's made a permanent memory for me. I really love the um, Louis Louis marathon KFJC yeah. story because that's, yeah, there was, that's from a while back. Yeah, that was from the nineteen early 1980s. And it started as sort of a back and forth um, challenge between KFJC and Calex at UC Berkeley on how many versions of Louie Louie the radio station could play. And then ultimately KFJC ended up playing, uh, see, now I need all of my little bits and pieces <laughs> of info, but I think over 800 versions. Um, and it, it was this epic, it became this epic thing and they had people performing live, including the songwriter and, um, they got reported on in the Wall Street Journal and Playboy and every no every local TV news station reported on the Louis Louis Marathon. So it's like looking yeah. back on this um, in 2019, it's kind of amazing to see every local TV news station doing a story about a radio station because you just don't see that happening anymore. So. It was an amazing creative project um, that really seemed to bring people together. I have friends who were kids at the time, and they remember recording a version of Louie Louie with their families on cassette tape and walking, you know, driving up to the station and then walking into the station and handing in their cassette during the marathon. So it became this big community, you know, participatory event as well as they were trying to find more and more versions of it. So that's that's a cool tidbit. Um, I'm looking at a moment that I would like to share uh, from 1964. And I think I want to put this in context. And in 1964, national public radio does not exist. There is no such thing as nationwide public radio in the United States. The BBC exists. The CBC exists. We have nothing of the sort in the United States. Now, universities and independent public stations exist throughout uh, the country, but they're not networked up. Uh, college radio stations are a big presence in the left end of the dial in non-commercial radio. Over at KFJC, you have shared here, Jennifer, in the blog, uh, just this list of, of people, notable people, who were on the air in 1964. And maybe you've heard of... Ken Kesey, 
Maybe you've heard of the Kingston Trio. Maybe you've heard of Barry Goldwater Jr., uh, a presidential, uh, uh, soon-to-be presidential candidate. Right, Mel Torme, right <laughs> Buddy Epson are just some of the people who appeared on this college radio station in yeah, 1964. It's, it's kind of shocking. And there was, um, it was like a two or three page list that mm-hmm. I believe it was the station manager at the time compiled a list of everybody who'd been on the station, all the voices that had been on the station in the prior year. And it was, or it might've even been a semester. I, it was kind of unbelievable to me. And at that point, they probably were doing more public affairs, public interest programming than than they're doing today. Uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And you know, I found photos of Joan Baez in the studio mm-hmm. at KFJC at one point. Um, there's stories about all sorts of famous bands that popped by and were interviewed and and played live. So yeah, it's quite a few. Notables. <laughs> well, and and I think why I put it in that historical context is to point out how college radio, in the way that that Eric pointed out uh, earlier in the show, you know, represents the history of radio. And so when it came to having this sort of public affairs programming, to having, you know, both uh, covering cultural touchstones, political touchstones, uh, you know, social touchstones, uh, here we have one station there, uh, KFJC, representing all of that in the year 1964. And, And you note, Jennifer, how... Perhaps the station was doing more kind of talk public affairs programming then. Well, one might argue perhaps it was more necessary there in 1964 before there was a well-developed public radio system uh, so that the non-commercial dial would have been relatively empty by comparison. And you have Foothill College coming up and and taking, taking on that mantle with its radio station. And in that way, I might argue that the history of KFJC at 60 years represents the history of college radio and in some ways the history of non-commercial radio. And though public radio may be well more well known at this point by more people, in part because it is a federally funded system that has a lot more resource and is very well networked, uh, college radio continues to be a part of the backbone of a non-commercial radio system in the United States and one that um, in many ways is much more diverse. Yeah, makes space for a lot more of, um, yeah, a lot more people can do a lot more things on on a college radio station than on a public radio station. Yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, and well, and there are all these sort of very specific things happening at stations all over the country, which is, you know, that's why that, that's why I like to write about college radio so that people are reminded of all of these very specific and interesting and important programs that are happening in 2019 as well. So yeah, it's it's fun to highlight these little tidbits from the past and all these things are still happening today, which is amazing. Yeah, each one of these stories is like a, a point in an impressionist painting as it fills out its large and diverse and colorful picture. Well, and it reminds me that um, anybody listening now, especially if you're a, someone who's a participant in a community radio station, you could start today sort of documenting your station's story just by uh, keeping a list of guests. The history of a community radio station. Or college station. Or college radio station. I think of them as the same sorts of sure. stations because of the participatory nature of the workers, uh, the unpaid workers. There's, It's just an exciting idea to think that um, just keeping a blog 
record of the work that you're doing on a daily basis sort of has a cumulative effect on uh, keeping track of the work you're doing. Absolutely. Which is what, you know, that station manager in the 1960s, that's precisely why. And, and I think it's important for every station to do this to, you know, continue to talk about the good work that you're doing. And so by compiling that list at the end of the year, he was, you know, reminding the college, you know, look at all of this amazing public affairs programming we're doing. And he was probably and, required by law to do it. Because yeah, uh, stations are required to keep uh, an issues and uh, programming list that is filed in your public file. And while those requirements have become pretty loose uh, in the days of deregulation in 1964, they were pretty serious. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure that he had to compile it and put it in his public file. Um, and often that's a, some lost and forgotten history because people would take things out of the file because it doesn't it only needs to stay in there for like seven years. Um but boy, what history is lost in those disposed public files? <laughs> well, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's so, it's so incredible. I love that people kept such amazingly detailed notes on things that happened at the radio station. So, you know, not only are we finding things that have been housed at the station, but I also finally met up with the archivist at Foothill College and and he's finding more and more things in his collection hmm. from KFJC history. So yeah. it's exactly what, you know, I'm always encouraging people to do at college radio stations is reach out to your campus archivist. And in our case, it's been really amazing because he's excited to dive into this and to really develop the collection more. And he's also finding that he already has quite a few things. And so we're sharing things back and forth and he's been scanning things that we're not able to scan because they're oversized. So so that's been really cool, too. And it also allowed me to visit the archives and see all the interesting stuff that they have from the campus's history, uh, which, which kind of parallels KFJC because KFJC started out at the initial temporary campus for Foothill College, which was in Mountain View at the time. And and then this uh, grand campus was being built in Los Altos Hills, and a few years after KFJC began, it moved to the newly built campus. So the station is actually older than than the campus. <laughs> and I'm reminded as we're talking about these conversations that were broadcast with notable members of of uh, the United States community, as well, I'm sure, as more local figures. Um, one of the things that I learned from Radio Survivor in the year 2019 from a number of guests is just the unique nature of a radio interview and a same goes for the unique nature of a podcast radio recording that you're really hearing people's thoughts about issues that matter to them uh, in real time. In the moment that they're being recorded, that's what's coming out of their mouths and their minds. And that kind of uh, record as, you know, it's valuable in the moment because it's it's a, you know it's a very useful thing to to hear members of your community um, naming things and discussing issues. But then, as as those things become a part of an archive, it's really a very unique record of history where it's not something they wrote down and it's not uh, the book that they published. It's um it's the thoughts coming out of their mind in in that moment in time and uh there's nothing like yeah, that, it except on radio yeah and that audio is really important and and unfortunately like many radio stations kfjc doesn't have a whole lot of audio from its early years and 
the other another thing that I do that I that I should have mentioned in our whole introduction about ourselves is that I also work on the Radio Preservation Task Force, which is a project of the That's Library right. of Congress, and and I I wanted to be part of it in order to be a representative of college radio, and that college radio is an aspect of radio culture that its audio should also be preserved um, in the same way that other types of radio should be preserved. So there is a lot of audio out there that's disintegrating. And so if college radio stations do have some of that early audio on cassette or reel to reel tape, it, you know, now is the time to get that material into a safe place that's temperature controlled and also digitize that material. So that's my plug for that as well, that, it, you know, if you have recorded college radio history, now is the time to make sure that you're saving it so that people can appreciate that material. Like Eric said, you know, appreciate the 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 way that an audio interview is is different from a written piece um, so that that people today and in the future can listen to some of these voices from the past. And going back to the KFJC 60th anniversary, Jennifer, you just posted uh, a piece recently at radiosurvivor.com all about it, which links out to these various uh, different pieces, including these blog posts uh, talking about different moments and other artifacts. So I want to direct people to radiosurvivor.com. You can find the show notes of this podcast where we'll definitely be posting to it and you can find it very easily you go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast and you are listening to radio survivor we're here for the love of radio and sound i'm paul reese Wendell. you just heard from jennifer waits and with me here in portland oregon is eric klein hello everybody i think it's so funny that jennifer forgot to mention their contribution <laughs> to the radio preservation task force that's right but i think it's worth it's worth uh, just like throwing out there that we gave uh we gave our bios of why we love community radio and college radio, but the nature of the work is that there's always a different hat that we forget. There's always a podcast that I produce that I forget to mention when people ask me, what are the podcasts you produce? And uh, yeah, so for Jennifer's contribution to the Library of Congress's Radio Preservation Task Force to slip their minds is, uh, is pretty typical. I've got a couple love of it. news pieces I'd like to share, um, in part because it's the side of thing that you're probably not going to mention or notice really it's not going to come across your transom unless you follow radio news very deeply but i don't think that this is news just for radio nerds and for people in the industry i think it's something that anyone who listens to radio ought to know about um and the first thing is that the fcc is about to take up a proposal this month to allow stations on the am band to convert entirely to digital broadcasting. So you might have heard of something called HD radio. A lot of um, networks now, especially commercial FM radio networks, advertise it quite a bit. Um, it's a technology which squeezes digital uh, signals onto both the FM and AM bands alongside with an analog signal. It sounds really good, and you need a different radio than the one that everyone has already. Yeah, you're, yeah. I mean, a lot of car radios now support right. HD radio. New but a new car will will have a fancy radio. Has a good chance. And like, and if you're in a rental car, yeah. like that's where <laughs> those new I, cars. Yeah, I've often heard HD radio in a rental car. 
Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's so funny it's because it's not a new technology now. It's, it's been, been around, around about a decade. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, you know, so you get both a digital signal, which is a little quieter, especially on the AM band. You don't get interference. You don't get the background noise. And on the FM band, you can have additional channels, HD2 and HD3. Yeah. But right now, um, if you if you're a station broadcasting HD radio, that means you are broadcasting an analog signal that any radio can can pick up along with a digital signal that these special receivers can pick up. There's a proposal that the FCC is taking up on November 22nd to allow AM stations to go all digital. Now, it's they wouldn't be required to, but they would be permitted to go ahead and shift over. And what this means is, if a station on the AM dial switched over to all digital, all HD radio, you would no longer hear that station with your conventional analog receiver. Wow. So that's a big shift. I mean, AM radio is um, such a unique, like, forgotten chunk of our country's spectrum. And yet in many places, because yeah. of geography, it's often the radio that you're most likely to hear because it travels long distances very well, especially at night. My my young my young son, my friend who is 13 years old and cares about these things because he listens sometimes to me yabber about them, uh, thought that AM radio uh, was uh, abandoned and empty. You know, uh, eighth graders don't necessarily right. know that it still exists, is exactly. my point. And we've done uh, one of the first episodes we did on Radio Survivor. We talked a lot about how um, how much noisier listening to AM radio is in, in 2016 than it was in 1986. Yeah, there, you get electromagnetic interference that comes from things like LED lights. Yeah, the tra- Wi-Fi traffic routers. light. You, you go under a traffic light and all of a sudden your AM radio goes fuzzy. And so there's all so, these new sources of interference that make AM radio more list, difficult to listen to. Well, yeah, and so I keep hearing about the, re, the revitalization <laughs> of AM, which makes me laugh. So... It, Paul, like from what you're talking about, it sounds like it's not really trying to save AM. It's trying to move it somewhere else I mean, with revitalization, right? These efforts. Is that kind of what's going yeah, on? Yeah. I mean, I, I've often said that the, the revitalization efforts that the FCC is pursuing, calling revitalizing AM band, is really about welfare for AM broadcasters. So the first big prong of it, which has already happened, is that AM broadcasters were permitted the ability to get FM repeater stations. So now it's not uncommon in a lot of markets. You will listen to the FM dial and you'll hear talk radio that are on these low powered uh, repeater stations that, you know, provide a uh, fill in for an AM station. And that's not really revitalizing an a- AM. I mean, AM right. dial is still yeah. noisy and difficult. It's just that exactly. they gave uh, the AM broadcasters this express route to have uh, FM stations. So that's one prong of it. And now if they take it up, this idea of having all digital AM stations um, is also promoted as a revitalization with the arguments in favor being that if you can hear the uh, HD all digital AM station, uh, the audio quality will be a little better. There will be no noise, right? If you've ever heard um, an HD AM station, um, you'll note that there's like, as your, as your tuner tunes it in, it'll go from being kind of noisy background noise, all of a sudden, quiet background right it'll sound more like internet radio that way um and that's pretty much the principal argument in favor of how many so how many people actually have hd 
radios? How oh. many people will be able to hear this kind of station? So, Everyone with a new car. So, <laughs> What's you know, I investigated this. I've tried to put a number on this, and, and it's the number that the HD radio uh, intellectual property owners don't really want you to have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so weird because I just don't think about AM listeners as being new car owners. Right. I definitely feel like it's but, a, there's a schism. Well, but I mean, principally an AM. Oh, that's a ha- good point. You yeah. have <laughs> sports talk radio. Right. And conservative talk radio are the two most dominant forms of radio uh, that you'll hear on AM. And I don't think we can say necessarily that that they are not people who would own new cars, no, but they're people yeah, yeah. interested in two particular types That's- of programming, which tend to dominate. Um, basically, as of sort of uh, the beginning of 2019, 50% of new cars have an HD radio okay. capable receiver. And again, AM radio is worth – it's worth reminding some people – just how much of a reach it has compared to FM. It's, right. it, you know, we've talked about the history of radio on Radio Survivor, where in the United States there were AM radio stations that could be heard and in many across markets, the continent. In many cities, the number one rated radio station is AM. Because you can just hear it the whole... Well, it, also because in addition to sort of also news talk. So there are stations uh, which, you know, will, will air, you know, round-the-clock news. 24-hour news in some markets, and often that's the number one station, it's say like Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's like a Wisconsin. podcast network of some kind. He could listen to people just uh, talk about the news. Yeah, right. You know, But they, <laughs> these stations exist, and often they're, they're market leaders. And they are because uh, from a utility standpoint, there's a lot of utility. Uh, people in their cars often, but also getting ready for the morning. If they're not listening to, say, um, public radio news talk, they'll listen to hear what is the traffic? What are the headlines? What is the weather going to be? Yeah, which is on sort of constant rotation during drive time, if not at other hours. Um, so Amber, you still is listened to by lots and lots of people. And yet, yeah, right, and sports too. definitely sports, you know, in, in the San Francisco Bay area, historically, that's where you would hear yeah. sporting events was on AM radio stations. But you're right to ask how many people have an HD capable receiver because we say 50% of new cars, but the average age of a car on the road today is 11 years old. So to try and figure out what percentage of the cars on the road have an HD capable receiver, significantly less than 50% is what we can say. And then we look to home usage right, or office usage, places where people also still listen to the radio. And do you, most people out there probably don't even know how to find or get an HD-capable radio. A lot of um, home theater receivers actually have it built in, but very few people actually hook them, <laughs> use the radio in them. Yeah. Otherwise, if you buy like a portable radio um, or, you know, or something, you know, like a boom box, it's not going to have HD radio. And so what it would mean is that if you have an AM station that switches over to all digital, it's going to effectively disappear for somewhere between 25% to 80% of your audience. And is the, I mean, is the ultimate idea that, all of the AM dial would switch to digital and then you it, would completely lose traditional AM. It's been Is talked about for years. Uh, you know, it's hard to say, you know, th- this proposal was made by uh, someone named Ben Downs, who's the GM of, of a company called Brian Broadcasting in Texas. It's not a huge company, um, but they have a lot of AM stations. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a number of ways of looking at this. One way is to take the, the impulse is sincere, is to say that, that Ben Downs and other folks who were proponents are saying, look, if we do digital broadcasting on AM, 
it will be it will it may save it because people will be able to yeah. hear it better. Young people who have run out of data might turn into the and and and, and, and get a better station. signal quality and such. We still don't really know what that would look like. Would it still be able to go the same distances? What would fringe reception look like? There's a lot of questions yet to be answered. And and of course, yeah. if the FCC takes up this proposal, they will endeavor to look at it. Right? It's not going to be just all of a sudden switch Has on. Has this happened anywhere else on the planet? No, because HD radio is only in the United States. Oh, interesting. I, I, we, <laughs> and we, his, we have talked about digital right, just technology. Right, Ah, it's a yeah. different thing. Yeah. And is, so HD. Paul, is, is HD radio growing? Do you know? Uh, but growing in what way? <laughs> like, well, what, I mean, but, has it, what is it, is it something where are we seeing more and more HD stations or is it just sort of like flat? I'm just curious. You know, about I, that. I think, I think it's gotten flat. I think that most, you know, commercial radio groups have converted over to HD radio. So I think that the growth we're now it's flat, but if you were to listen in most you know, large cities at the very least, large markets, and you were to listen to HD radio, you would find the majority of commercial stations and a large number of public stations support HD radio one way or another. There was initiative with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting giving grants for stations to shift over to HD radio. So a lot of public radio stations support HD radio. Such a strange time for a new radio technology to emerge because the amount of alternatives... Right. is pretty unprecedented with satellite with the internet with with Now the cynical geez. point of view on changing over AM dial to digital me is to say that it has almost nothing to do with radio or audio but is about converting AM to being a data service because exactly. once you've gone digital you can put other data in there and so, uh, what so, kind of data? Personal well, data? on the uh, no, no. So, so, so traffic data, okay. Weather data. So your car, the ability computer. to uh, punch your dashboard and buy something you just heard advertised on the wow. radio. So a car computer could get could get weather information now. Uh, possible. This is this yeah. is a potential of the well. It is hap- it happens now when HD radio and FM. This yeah. does happen now, uh, where there's this extra data sidecar that goes along and. And and what is that the advantage? Well, you don't need to have a cell service, right? You don't yeah. need to be using a Wi-Fi data or something like that. So a cynical person might say that 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 at least one reason to do this is to convert AM to data, and really not so much to serve people with audio with sound because yeah. you're going to lose a lot of them who might otherwise hear it because you will if it were to go entirely digital, you would obsolete millions and millions and millions of receivers. That's always so, also a fascinating thing that never it's it's not a it's not a given piece of uh, uh um conventional wisdom that these spectrums uh these the technology of of radio that we have these spectrums that currently have sound broadcast on them. It's not a given right that it would always have that Yeah, the the place technology. where there used to be television yeah. is now used for cell phones and smartphone data, right? Yeah, you, you used to have fuzzy TV and now you have now you have wow. data. So Cuz there's only so so much spectrum available as far as broadcast technology goes. So I've written more about this that you can read over at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, it'll be at our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Um, You know, uh, personally, I come down, I'm a little like, well, it is optional. 
So it'll be more of an experiment to see what happens. But I do think that uh, folks who still depend on AM radio, especially in times when there are power outages, such as when there have been these rolling blackouts yeah. in California I want to, mention uh, to again, avoid my, wildfires. My friends in California, in Northern California, whose, whose power has gone out at the simultaneously to being threatened by by uh, uh, wildfires that are unpredictable. Like, I can't imagine... The value of radio yeah. goes up big time because with AM radio, all you need is a couple of batteries or you... I mean, with AM radio, you can build a crystal set, which requires no batteries to pick up emergency communications. And it's... I don't imagine millions of people building crystal sets in their garages, um, but at the same time, it, it goes to show how this 100-year-old technology, which seems not to get very much love these days, um, still provides a kind of safety backstop for local and nearly national communications that um, if we were to digitize it, uh, it would be greatly altered and could really greatly change our ability to depend upon it. So go to radiosurvivor.com to learn more about that. Um more radio news that I think people will be interested to know about. Because one of the questions that we consistently get via email and in other ways that people are constantly asking us is, how do I get a radio station? How do I start a radio station? And aside from a few uh, periods in time here and there, these days, mostly the answer is you can't unless you have millions of dollars are to you go Bill buy Gates? one. Are you friends with Bill Gates? <laughs> right. But there is upcoming license auction periodically the fcc opens up opportunities we'll call windows for people to obtain licenses right, for radio stations. I, I cynically mentioned a billionaire but at you know two particular times in recent memory uh, uh you didn't have to be friends with a billionaire to be able to afford a low power fm radio station. right the, the, yeah a non-commercial a licenses right. are available for free you do not have to pay the fcc for but them. those were limited time windows that yeah. uh, opened and closed and were very historically special there were yeah. special little moments to get a to get a non-commercial station uh, if you if you could mount that community effort and so coming up in april of 2020 there will be an fcc fm license auction these are for commercial radio stations so and by auction it's what they they mean it there's an entry price and then people submit bids and continue to submit bids until there's a winner I want to watch the live stream. Yeah, the rules are still being worked out, and we're not going to get too far into the minutia of the rules, so much as that I want to note, for all of you folks who've been asking us, how do I get a radio station, here's an opportunity. Now, we say that these are mostly in small to mid-sized markets. You're not going to get one in, in Portland, Oregon. You're not going to get one in San Francisco. You're not going to get one even in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, or El Paso, Texas. So these are mostly tiny markets. Um, in some states, there's only one or two winners of license available. The starting price can be as low as $750 for a relatively low-powered station in a relatively small community, all the way up to $100,000, which is the starting price for the one frequency available in Sacramento, California. Sacramento is... That's a pretty a, big market, yeah, yeah, and growing. I mean, it's, Well, but, and it's the state capital of California. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's but a I, big I, city. We do have to note that that's the starting that that is the starting price. And so I'm, I'm going to guess that that will be a fairly valuable piece of spectrum. 
and it is likely to be bid up by moneyed buyers. So we can't say that you can get a station for $100,000 so much wait. as that's the entry point. I can't wait to find out. Will you please uh, make a mental note to tell me what the, what the sale <laughs> we'll price is We'll review back when it's all done after April Because Sacramento, is a, I know, is a growing city. So mm. that's if that's the biggest small city, it's not that it's not small. And these are commercial stations. So if you uh, win an auction, uh, you can run that station for a profit. It's also a fun one because uh, radio is not dead or dying. Uh, you know, we'll get to find out what the what the value is for a station in Sacramento, California. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. If So if somebody wanted to start a community radio station, mm. is this a viable option to to enter into this auction? Commercial community radio. Well, no, there are um, there are stations, community stations, run on what are ostensibly commercial frequencies. Uh, because your frequency is eligible to be a commercial station, does not mean you are required to air commercials. It's a weird accident right. of the United States that we have such a binary sounding radio system where where if people well, are allowed access to be volunteers to work there. It's it's right. a non-commercial station. Well, and and earlier on the show, I mentioned WPRB at Princeton University. Yeah. That's actually a commercially licensed radio yeah. station, and it's a college radio station. Huh. So they can do fundraisers, and they could potentially run commercials, but but they don't run commercials, but they could if they yeah. wanted to. So that's, that's indeed, it could be an opportunity for a community radio station, just understanding that part of that investment is going to be in the license itself which wouldn't be the case with a non-commercial frequency where you wouldn't have to invest any money in the license itself, uh, at least from right. the FCC. And you, would, and you would have certain freedoms because you would be allowed to air commercials. Exactly. And you wouldn't have to worry about certain FCC rules that apply to non-commercial stations. Yeah, you could stations. fundraise for other nonprofits. You know, right, there is more flexibility in that, but uh, with, with the, the caveat that, of course, the, the frequencies themselves are more expensive. Will Spotify be bidding? I just tried to think of the largest. Well, uh, Pandora uh, for a while company. owned owned a radio station, and Matthew wrote right. about it. Uh, Matthew Rossard right. wrote about it for Radio Survivor. But that was fascinating because it wasn't necessarily to, to run it for profit; it was more to uh, to to sneak in a loophole for their uh, music licensing uh, right. fees. Right to, to to claim that they could pay lower fees uh, as. Yeah. Radio stations but are permitted to what do. What Matthew truly enjoyed when that station uh, was something he was following was how um, how they were using mm-hmm. their Pandora uh, data mining set, all of the information that they had across the United States from from the people that listened to their internet radio station uh, to to program the music for this terrestrial radio station. It was a unique opportunity to sort of uh, swim uphill. Yeah, Paul, I, it's so interesting that this auction's coming up, and I'm glad that you brought it to our attention. Just sort of scanning through the list of towns, there's one that I'm familiar with, Fort Bragg in California, which is on the Mendocino Coast. So I'm I'm curious if anybody's going to scoop that one up. And, and I'm also curious about existing low-power FM stations, if this auction provides some sort of opportunity for low-power FM stations to increase their signal, maybe in smaller markets like that, where the auction price might be lower? That's a complex question, is what it is. Officially, a, some, uh, an organization that owns a low-power FM may not own another radio station. So officially, they may not be co-owned, and they may not have uh, too many board members in common. Hmm. So, And that's for the point of that low-power FMs are supposed to be independent, and based in the community of license. Uh, 
there's not a parallel restriction or reciprocal restriction on the commercial stations. Uh, you can own a lot of them. Uh, and if they're spread all over the country, there's no limit on how many you can, you, you can own. But uh, so I guess it's plausible that someone could uh, buy a commercial station and choose to rebroadcast the programming of a low power FM provided that they were not uh, hmm. an official part of that low power FM. I was just thinking that maybe and somewhere. And, and, and here's the point at which I have to say, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Please right. do not take my advice. And Please don't, consult don't email, a lawyer before doing this. There advice. are many uh, qualified broadcast lawyers out there and I'm not one. of I them. I was thinking that perhaps uh, somewhere in the United States, a low power FM community, like people that have been doing broadcasting now for five years or 10 years. Is that how old a low power FM is yet? No. Um, a low power FM could be as old as nearly 20. That's right. So strange to adapt to this new uh, time passing reality. Um, that those <laughs> individuals who, who've, who've uh, gotten their beaks wet, as it were, with this radio station could uh, could level up, could decide to move on. and To a higher powered station. Yeah, to a higher powered station and, and have commercials, try to, to do commercial radio. I'm thinking of some low power FM friends I have in mind, but I won't, I won't name well, them. Yeah. And there have been people in the low power FM community who have wanted to air commercials. So I think that's what has me (laughs) thinking about that. It's funny. Yeah, that but they can't have their cake and eat it too. I know. We will let you know when that auction is coming up in case you want to participate and we'll we'll see about the scorekeeping when it's (laughs) once it's over. Um, we're getting close to the end here at Radio Survivor, where we are here for the love of radio and sound. The end of this episode. The end of this episode. Um, but I wanted to mark a quick anniversary. We talked about the 60th anniversary of KFJC at Foothill College in California. Um, ostensibly now, it is the 25th anniversary of another kind of broadcasting. Jennifer? Yeah, the 25th anniversary. Well, let's see. We have to be careful with all the language. Definitely, <laughs> definitely the 25th. 25th anniversary of a simultaneous radio and internet stream. Um, and this is important for a lot of reasons. Um, I think it's really cool that the first radio stations to broadcast their signal simultaneously on the internet were college radio stations. So the week that we're recording this episode marks the 25th anniversary of WXYC at Youth, uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That is when they began their internet stream of their radio broadcast. And then around the same time, also WREK at Georgia Tech. And they both started streaming on the same on the same day in November 1994. And then University of Kansas Station, KJHK, just a month later in December 1994. So Again, college radio pioneering yeah. on the internet, too. Yeah, and we celebrated the 25th anniversary of internet radio last year, in 2018. But I want to note that what we what we sort of mark is this, is this founding moment is a radio show called Geek of the Week, which was broadcast live over a portion of the internet that you could really only get uh, at universities and other official government agencies on the internet, and most people didn't have home internet in 1993. This was this was a this was one of your uh, interviews, Paul, that you produced for Radio Survivor yeah. that I love. There was also a moment in this uh, instance where this technology was available, where uh, somebody accidentally played their jazz CD across this uh, tiny internet called the M Bone. Yes, and that was that was it. That the was the multicast. first time that music was streamed. 
And and that only goes back to 1993. And so, and I can find no other Alexander Graham Bell, uh, Watson, exactly. I need you moment where where they played a jazz CD. And I've researched this. I've asked a lot of people a lot of questions, and nobody else can cite another radio station, the broadcast station that had a simulcast prior to that November of 1994. So I think I'm willing to hand it to WXYC and WREK at uh, UNC Chapel Hill and Georgia Tech respectively as the very first broadcast radio stations to also have live simulcast radio streams and ones that were like an established service. Like this wasn't an experiment. This wasn't, I'm sure they experimented for several days before that to make sure it would actually work before they told anyone about it. Yeah. And, um, uh, a colleague, Andrew Bottomley, who's also on the Radio Preservation Task Force, he has a book talking about this early history. And and he points out that WXYC had started to work on theirs as early as August 1994. So he definitely was digging into all the details on this, too. So we're And that's we're really clarity. only when the technology became possible, where uh, to do it on the yeah. public Internet in 1994 is really about the first time that they could have really done it well, and gotten it to somebody who might be uh, in a dorm room or uh, on, on a home dial-up connection. Well, and that's, again, to, to bring this full circle with today's themes, where there are echoes of college radio enthusiasts, of, of young people who are working at college radio stations who are uh, trailblazing new technologies. Now in the 90s, we're talking about being the first on the radio, on the internet, the first radio stations on the internet. But we also know that similar uh, things were occurring way back in the 1920s, where college radio enthusiasts uh, who were young in the 1920s were some of the first to be trailblazing on on those. The idea of just simply broadcasting at all. And what it is, what it means to have this microphone that you speak into uh, and an audience that's receiving it. a lot of that energy and and uh, initial work was being done at college radio stations. And, you know, in talking about 1994 and then back to KFJC, which turned 60 this year, in spring of 1994, KFJC figured out a way to broadcast from South by Southwest in Austin, and they offered up that signal to college and community radio stations all over the United States. And so thinking about that in the time before widespread internet streaming that, you know, Did they, they do that on the satellite. internet. No satellite. They satellite. use satellite technology, yeah. you know, cause today you could do that using the internet, but you know, it, it kind of amazes me to think about how they figure that out in spring 1994. Um, they had to use satellite to get that signal all over the country to different stations. So quite an undertaking. College, community, non-commercial, radio, pioneering so many technologies we take for granted today, including podcasting, I would argue, is really pioneered so much by folks who came on uh, with a non-commercial uh, you know, sensibility. Um, even if now uh, things have become profitable, uh, it is the experimenters. The, for some. The experimenters, the dabblers. Uh, the folks who just want to see what we can do with this thing. How does this thing work? 
um, that's what often breaks this new ground. And that's what we celebrate here on Radio Survivor. We really appreciate that you've spent an hour with us to help celebrate radio and sound. If you have any comments about anything we've spoken about on today's program, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. All the show notes, references, and links you can go down the rabbit hole with us are at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast as well. Thank you for listening, everybody. See you next week.